I'm Patricia Duff and welcome to The Common Good. We've got a terrific uh, panel this afternoon on one of the biggest events of our time. So let's get right to it. Okay, we're still counting ballots, but actually the voting process went pretty smoothly, all things considered. The nerve wracking delays in counting the huge number of mail-in ballots should have been expected. The close vote tallies and razor thin margins were not expected by many experts. But even once we have the results, we are still not out of the woods. What the heck has happened and what's in store in the coming weeks? Court challenges, further discord spilling into the streets of our results, any taint of illegitimacy to the election. Our brilliant panel this afternoon will have the most up-to-date information about the results and the many other ramifications of this election. So let's introduce them. First, I just want to tell you, we will miss Anita Dunn, who had to withdraw just a, a little while ago as a senior VP, a senior advisor to uh, Vice President Joe Biden. I'm sure it would have been difficult to speculate on results that are not final. So we'll track her down for another day. But that leaves more time for our other amazing speakers. Uh, Charlie Cook um, is one of the most sought after and recognized political analysts and pollsters in the United States. His firm and its projections is published in the P Cook Report, analyzes elections and campaigns for the House, the Senate, governor's offices, and the presidency. He's been called the Picasso of election analyses and perhaps the best <laughs> and tracker of congressional races. And his newsletter has been credited as authoritative by both sides. And how about this? It's called the Bible of the political community. Charlie, you're a giant in the political arena. We are thrilled to have you join us. Senator Al Franken has been an outspoken leader and an all-star in smart political satire. At Saturday Night Live, where Al started his career as a writer and actor, Al received seven Emmy nominations and three awards for his television writing and producing. Then he wrote several books, a number of which were New York Times bestsellers. He eventually shifted gears to run for office and served in the Senate representing Minnesota for 10 years giving the people and issues his serious side and some dramatic moments, particularly for his sharp questioning of witnesses such as Jeff Sessions for Attorney General or Betsy DeVos in Judiciary Committee hearings. He now hosts a show on SiriusXM. Al, we loved you on TV. We loved you in the Senate. We love having you here. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. By the way, Patricia Picasso was terrible at election, <laughs> at calling elections. <laughs> Yeah, I bet you're right. <laughs> um, Rick Wilson has really stood out in this election cycle. I'm just going to say a little bit about him. So if he comes on, he's, you know who the heck he is. He's been considered one of the top Republican strategists, extremely gifted at advertising and campaign advice. Although he was a loyal and important member of the Republican Party, he took a huge leap in deciding to stand against the reelection of Trump and help revive a better, more principled conservative party when he co-founded the Lincoln Project in 2015. His ads in the election cycle have been some of the best ever. Rick's writings have been published in every major newspaper. He serves as editor-at-large of the Daily Beast, and he is a New York Times bestselling author. Everything Trump touches dies, and, his, and his, this is his latest one, running against the devil. Uh, we do have some pro-Trump people in the audience who may not agree with you, Rick, but we're thrilled. Hopefully, we'll have you in a few minutes, and we're awed by your political courage. Can't wait to hear from you. And to lead the conversation it, it is our moderator, an award-winning journalist, a terrific commentator, and a great friend of the common good, 
Jonathan Capehart. Jonathan's writings earned him a Pulitzer Prize for him in the New York Daily News for editorial writing. And Jonathan was the youngest member ever of the New York Daily News editorial board. He currently writes for the Washington Post and sits on their editorial board. But you've probably seen him on MSNBC where he's often an anchor or commentator. He also hosts the Cape Up podcast in which he talks to newsmakers about race, religion, age, gender, and cultural identity and politics. Jonathan, so happy to have you back. Thank you so much. And thank you all. Privileged to have you. So I'm going to turn the mic over to you, Jonathan, to lead our conversation. All right. Thank you very much, Patricia, for your, your introduction. And it might be, oh, good. The echo is gone. So there's a lot going on. I'm keep, keeping my eye on, um, eye on the TV in case there's some breaking news. But I do want to start with, with Charlie, um, since you are Picasso, Charlie. Um, and things are rolling. They're just they're rolling. There, I see some commentary on Twitter of people wondering why haven't some of the networks called Pennsylvania, called Nevada, agreed to call more of them call Arizona? When to the minds of the people commenting, those races are pretty much done. Can you explain to all of us what is what is happening? And it, and can folks who are here listening? be assured that indeed Joseph Robinette Biden is going to be the 46th president of the United States. I've been having to explain that to my family that, uh, <laughs> that this is over. They still, they don't believe me. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, the, the networks uh, and the wires, I mean, they've got, they've got standards they've got to meet. And it's just like that, uh, you know, AP, I know it used to be where the trailing candidate, there was no path to victory. There was not, no longer any scenarios to victory. I mean, they, so they have thresholds they have to hit, but you could kind of see where this was going. You could see, um, you could see that uh, uh, Pennsylvania, w where, where we were going there, you could see that in Georgia. Um, you know, on election night, uh, election night, I was going through my blue period because I didn't know what in the hell was going on, which I, I and it was uh, the strangest election I ever saw because the presidential, at least the, the, the destination where it ended up was not surprising to me at all. It's just the route that was taken that was just, just floored me. And, um, and I, I guess we should have been prepared on election night to know that uh, nothing was gonna be the same as normal. There were no, you know, you couldn't predict uh, the paths of, of when votes were going to be released when, uh, where, uh, in a lot of these states, because not only is it every state different, but in some states, you know, every counties can different policies. And even in some places like, you know, Wisconsin, municipalities can have different policies. So um, it was, a, it was no question, it was a, a roller coaster. Um, what what the thing that left me but but this thing is this thing's you know it's done you can put a fork in that but uh, to me the concerning two concerns or two things jump out one is that while to me what ha ended up happening in the presidential race and what states and all that that wasn't that much of a surprise but down ballot below that. Uh, I, you know, we're, we're, our team, other three editors and I, we're, we're on the phone emailing. Uh, uh, Republicans were bracing themselves for a horrible, horrible night 
uh, in the suburbs. They, they were predicting it'd be blood in the streets of, of the suburbs in Texas. That, I mean, it was like every indication in the world was that big stuff was gonna happen. And the only question was how far was it gonna go? And that a uh, Republicans only losing a seat or two, the chances of that seemed to be really shrinking. Um, and the question was just how big was it gonna be? And uh, as a former pollster and a, a, an industrial consumer of polls, um, I, um, I, I understand what happened in 2016, and I think it got tweaked and we all thought it was fixed. Uh, this time though, uh, this, was, this was a bit much bigger off than in 2020. And I'm, I'm beginning to wonder whether we're gonna have to find new ways of figuring out what do people think and why do they think that and what views are entrenched and which ones are more malleable. Uh, but, but that's sort of the thing that shook my confidence uh, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, that, and this wasn't partisan because, um, you know, the Democrat, what Democrats were seeing was the same thing that Republicans were seeing. And, and actually the only difference in the points of view was that the Republican, and these are some of the most experienced people in the Republican party, they were more pessimistic about their side than Democrats were optimistic, but I was attributing that to just lingering PTSD from 2016. That you know sometimes some people just wouldn't take yes for an answer, and 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 they they were just resistant to the idea that they, this could go. So, um, but no, this thing the the the, the presidential is done. I mean, it, it's done, and and I think you're getting signals that the legal thing isn't going anywhere. Um, it's it's the Senate going into overtime and being anywhere from. Uh, the Senate staying, being at 52, 48, 52 Republicans, 48 Democrats, 250-50 and Kamala Harris breaking a tie. And we're just not gonna know till January 6th. And, and we don't know what the mindset is gonna be you know, in the Republican party after Trump's loss. I mean, will Georgia Republicans and the Trump base, will they be madder than hell and looking you know, looking for victory. I mean, they're just charged up or are they going to be despondent and, and lose interest? And I could argue it either way. And, mm -hmm. and that'll be one of the things we'll be looking for. Well, um, Senator Franken, let me bring you in here um, to get you to react to what Charlie said. But since you were a former member of the Senate, uh, perhaps you can start off talking about what you think the prospects are uh, for John Ossoff and for Reverend Raphael Warnock in actually actually winning their races for the U.S. Senate in Georgia. Well, this is going to be an amazing phenomenon, this runoff uh, for both of these, uh, because it will determine the whether uh, Biden has a Senate that he can work with or he has Mitch McConnell as a barrier to everything. So that, uh, and I don't know the answer to that. Uh, the, before we, we started this, Patricia was saying like, well, you know, Georgia voters are gonna want, not gonna want a uh, president with an entirely democratic Congress. I don't know about that. I, I, maybe they wanna actually, people in Georgia wanna get things done. But what, what we do know is that everybody is gonna be 
in Georgia is going to be bloody Kansas, which is going to be everybody's there. I do want to uh, take up uh, Charlie's uh, uh, about polling. Uh, I was talking, I'll bring Chris Rock into this. I was talking to Chris last night and we were talking about the polling and he said, uh, and, and the, uh, the Nate Silvers who aggregate polling and analyze it. And he said that uh, Nate Silver is like uh, the stopper that a manager really likes who always gives up the home run. <laughs> it's like, it's just, he's just a very bad reliever is you can't rely on polls anymore. And that this was unbelievably off. Uh, I think what was the poll Charlie that had uh, uh, Biden winning by 17 in Wisconsin? Yeah, that was a ABC Washington Post poll. But you know, the thing is, even I, I can, even the best pollster, one out of twenty, is going to just be like the interviews were on another planet. But but, but all of these were. Your, your I mean, it's not. It's, not, it's, it's, not it's, it's not. It's not that this was. They were all wrong. They were all wrong, and uh, that's what. That's why election night was so depressing, and and I was depressed until. President Trump showed up at two in the morning or whatever time that was. And when he did that, I just went, oh, good, we won. Because <laughs> it was like, he showed his hand. I mean, he went out there and he just, he, he didn't have to do that. Mm -hmm. and, and he just shot himself in the foot because everyone just went like, holy mackerel. He's saying stuff that just isn't true. He's uh, sweaty, he's desperate. This is oh I guess I guess Biden won, and and also he completely just completely destroyed any credibility he would have going forward. So I I do think it's it's inevitable, but it could get ugly all the way through this, and all the way through the uh, transition could be really ugly. There could be aspects of the transition that are really hinky. Are are is is Trump going to try to destroy records? I mean, you know, I think the call of the president of Ukraine is uh, the tip of the iceberg, what they've been hiding. And there's a presidential records act that you can't destroy this stuff. I, I think there's going to be, uh, uh, this is gonna be a very, very hinky period. And uh, for, <laughs> Uh, and, and, and what Trump is going to do during a transition to undermine uh, Biden, uh, that's all very interesting. And, and also how long, and Rick might know more about this than any of us, how long these Republicans like Kevin McCarthy and uh, Lindsey and those people are going to stay with the president and how that's going to work its way out and how, how weird this is going to get. That, that, so, I'm looking at that. Yeah, and I want to get to some of that um, in a little bit, but I do want to come back to polls because there's a question that I have, and I wonder if other people have. And I just wonder how much does how much of a role does lying play in in polling? Um, could some of the, the the reason that the polls were off in 16 and this go round? is because people were lying to pollsters. Is that a thing? Uh, first of all, no, I don't think so. But number two, wait a minute. 
wait a minute. Weren't these polls the ones that said that um, Joe Biden had was ahead in, in Arizona, that he was ahead in Michigan, that he was ahead in Minnesota, Nebraska too, Nevada, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Georgia. I mean, the thing is, they weren't wrong. They got the degree wrong, okay. but they looking at, you know, presidentially, none of them got the direction wrong. I mean, so, I mean, the thing is, if you went to bed before the first reports came out and then you woke up today, <laughs> well, no, the thing is, at least in terms of the presidential, no, it was basically, in, you know, it was pretty much in line. I mean, you know, uh, I, I thought that that Florida would have been a little close, it would have been closer, but no, I mean, the thing is the polls did not, the in the, in the, in the presidential, I don't think the polls were that far off. Now, right. averaging seven points, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, or ten went ten. But but in terms of individual states, this is not inconsistent with what the polls were telling us. Not at all. Not at all. Except Wait. the degree. I mean, the margin. That's that's very important. And that's why no, no, the electoral college votes are one. I mean, they're binary. It's not, you know, it's just you either get them or you don't get them. Except I, I understand that, but we, uh, it, it, it was just the margin. Margin makes a difference, it's like and especially in states like Florida and Texas. And this is a this was a lot, a lot closer than we imagined. Well, I guess I'm I'm also wondering. Sorry, Senator. I'm also wondering um, about, say, you know, senators who actually got reelected, like Senator Susan Collins of Maine, who a lot of people were writing her political obituary until they had to scrap it. And so, when it comes to when it comes to, say, her race and other sort of statewide races, is there a, is there a difference in the methodology? or anything like that, Charlie, that can explain why someone like Sarah Gideon, who was up in the polls for, for a while on election day when people actually voted, she, didn't, she wasn't victorious. I'm glad you picked that one because I'm sitting in Maine right now where I've been since early July. And I don't know anybody that knows shit about politics that thought that Susan Collins was ever dead. And the last couple of weeks, I thought she had really come back and, you know, in my mind, was more likely to win than not, because the negative ads on, on Sarah Gideon, and I don't know whether this shit was true or not, but the thing is, it, it just, here was somebody that was unknown before that got destroyed by negative ads. Whether they were accurate or not, I don't know. But the thing is, so anybody that said that Susan Collins was gone was dead. I mean, I mean, it was, it was just flat wrong. Now, uh, Cory Gardner, the polls were telling us that Cory Gardner was gone. And guess what? He was gone. gone. That Arizona Senate, that Martha McSally was gone. And guess what? Gone. Now, North Carolina, it looked like Tillis was gone, gone dead. Then we had the scandal. It looked like the scandal didn't hurt him too much. So we thought it hurt Cunningham much. Um, now, so I would say maybe, I would say in the North Carolina Senate race, no, that's not, so no, but Maine is just, I think a complete misinterpretation of the race and just people getting, getting over their skis. But, mm -hmm. you know, but, but Susan Collins was never dead. 
ever. But if you look at Mike at, at, at uh, Bullock, I mean that margin. That was. It was basically within two points all the way. Yeah, and then that, and what was the end result? Well, they. Uh, I remember being on a call with J.B. Porsche, who runs the um, the yeah. Senate Majority Pack, and he was saying uh, this was a few weeks ago, and he was saying, you know. In these kind of seats in the past, very Democrat in 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 very, a popular Democrat in a very very Republican state, at some point the bottom in the past the bottom has always just fallen out, and he said it hadn't fallen out yet, and it got all the way to the end. But um, you know, my thinking had been going into election day was that uh, if every state didn't go exactly, every Senate seat didn't go exactly the way it was going in the presidential, uh, there weren't going to be many exceptions, which is why I, I never put, put Bullock as favored, uh, Kansas as favored. I mean, because these are tough, tough, tough well, places. What was the margin, though, in Montana? Uh, I don't, don't have it in front of me. Because well, well, I did talk to the governor, all right, texted with him back and forth and there was just uh my impression is that he had no idea that the margin was quite large and that it was completely unpredictable and Danes is is I mean I know Danes and I know Bullock and boy uh Bullock was a very popular governor and uh Danes not a great senator and so I was, uh, I was very disappointed with that. That and uh, it, it just seems like on the, on the down ticket races, the polling was even worse than uh, in the presidential. And I, I think you started out by saying that, didn't you, Charlie? Yeah. Well, yeah. No. I, yeah. Well, I think it's the president. Presidential race was not a surprise to me. It just wasn't. And maybe it was to some people, but it wasn't a surprise to me. The and and it got the it 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 wasn't real great at picking the degree, but it absolutely in getting the direction. Um, I never saw a single poll that ever had Bullock ahead by more than the margin of error, not one. And the fact that a place like Montana could end up being bad for a uh, a Democrat in a presidential election year um, shouldn't be terribly shocking. Um, uh, it, it's more the North Carolina that um, where Tillis hadn't been ahead since Moby Dick was a guppy, and and, and that's that's to me that's one that that's that's the place where I, I want to hear. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the polls were 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 accurate in 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 uh, in Maine. Um, so Ch Charlie, Charlie. So um, uh, we've talked a lot about the polls. Um, but there's a lot more going on and, um, you know, we'll, we'll know hopefully soon enough about the presidential. Um, one, I just want to make sure, is Rick Wilson here yet or not? So it's just uh, Charlie and Al, which is great. It's fine. Because I do want to talk about where do we think things are going uh, once we do have a projected winner for the White House. How likely is it, do you think, uh, and I'll start with you, Senator Franken, that the, that the that President Trump 
will keep doing the kinds of things he did last night, which is uh, go to the White House press briefing room and do the greatest hits of grievance um, that also serve the purpose of riling up, up his supporters to the point where they don't accept the, the election results. How concerned are you by either future civil unrest or the president trying to litigate this in the courts and the possibility of him being successful? I'm not into Trump porn. And so I didn't watch last night because I didn't care. I mean, the thing is, if people want to just dwell in this, uh, people on either side, you know, be my guest. But, but the fact that the president's jumping up and down and doesn't like the outcome, uh, that's probably the most predictable thing uh, mm. on the planet. Um, the idea, you know, when you think of Al Gore's uh, uh, accept or you know acceptance of the Supreme Court decision, um, grace, dignity. I'm sorry, I never expected that from President Trump. Um, but you know, to me, this was, and and to me, the outcome or where this is going is really pretty clear. I mean, once you know that the only where the uncounted votes are from. Uh, and, and you know where, who they're going to be coming from, then there hadn't really been a lot of, of, of mis, you know, mystery uh, in the outcome of this in, in, you know, in a day or so, as far as I'm concerned. But um, I do wonder, I mean, to me, you had a whole lot of party line voting. You had, a, I mean, uh, right now, putting exempting exempting Georgia because we don't know who's going to be the Senate and who's going to. Uh, well, I think we know we're presidential, but um, Susan Collins was the only only uh, person that won when the other party won their state, or the only where the state went, the state the presidential and the Senate race went opposite directions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are getting into we are in a period now of of. Uh, uh, an incredible degree of, of partisanship, and um, that, and and that the the I I think I we didn't see I I we I knew we were going to have the biggest turnout ever. I'm, I was taken aback by some of the numbers in that um, uh, that the Trump base uh, they were bigger quantity wise mm-hmm. than expected them to be. And I'm, I, I'm wondering, suspect, suspect, uh, I suspect that when they spent a lot of money last winter and spring, well, last winter doing targeted voter registration, trying to find more Trump people that just happened to have never registered to vote and getting them out um, before, the, before the Biden had nailed down the nomination and before the pandemic and Democrats couldn't after that, uh, I'm, I'm beginning to wonder whether maybe, they, maybe that's mm-hmm. what made a difference in a lot of these key states and brought them back up was they, they, so, they found new voters. Right, so, but, but Senator Franken, to, to the original question of like where, what's, what do you think is going to happen once we do have um, the, the race declared, um, how concerned are you by what the president did last night and his propensity to probably do it again uh, during the transition period and what that would do, the messages that sends to his supporters, on the, uh, that's one bucket, but then the other bucket has to do with the litigation 
um, that he's engaged in that he's hoping will make its way to the Supreme Court uh, and thereby try to overturn the will of the people at the ballot box. How concerned are you about what could happen uh, over the next, I think it's 79 days? Yeah, yeah, we've been living with Trump born for four years and it's had a dramatic effect on our lives. Um, because of Trump porn, we have 230 some thousand people dead and many of them didn't have to be dead. And I don't, this guy is capable of anything. I, as, as I said, I think on election night or two in the morning, I think he um, said he blew it. Uh, there's really no credibility, obviously, to what he was saying, but he didn't have to do that then. Um, but I don't know. I don't know the answer to those questions. And those are things we have to, you know, whether or not, so far we haven't actually had any violence. We haven't had any other than right before the election trying to push that bus off the road or that kind of thing. We had some people in Maricopa County with guns and and stuff, but I don't know what this guy does. And you've seen Republicans uh, by and large behind, I mean, uh, Lindsey Graham is calling for basically Pennsylvania legislature to do an alternate uh, uh, number, uh, you know, uh, their own uh, electors and inflated electors. And um, I, I don't quite know how this turns out. I kind of have the feeling that it's going to be okay. <laughs> and that, you know, the baby wails loudest before he goes to sleep. And that uh, he'll kick and scream. And then at a certain point, he'll go down to to Florida and Mar-a-Lago, and then we just won't hear from him <laughs> between Christmas, you know, the holidays and January 20th. And I'll tell you one thing, this is one thing I've been saying, is now is not the time for the Joint Chiefs to take away the nuclear code from him. Now is the time for them to give him the wrong code. I, I have not heard a single prominent Republican election lawyer say that there's anything to this. And in fact, Ben Ginsburg, you know, former counsel of the Republican National Committee released a pretty remarkable uh, statement today about my party is destroying itself on the altar of Trump. I mean, the thing is that this legal challenge, uh, at least so far, there's nothing to it. And there's no reason to think there will be anything to it. So I have no reason to think that, that the, these challenges are gonna matter to a whole lot. Uh, you know, that doesn't, and, and what, what, you know, in the towards the end, Al was saying that uh, um, about, you know, Trump will bitch, bitch and moan and then eventually go off to Florida. No, I think that's exactly what's going to happen. And so what he gets up in front of the cameras and wails around, as long as he's not launching launching missiles or doing doing things that can't be um, turned around, I mean, that's, that's, those would be things I would, I would worry about. But um, I, I do, um, well, I'll just... Well, he's got a great election lawyer in Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> so, I don't know played him a dime on election. Before, before we go down the, the, the Giuliani rabbit hole, uh, actually to avoid going down the, the Giuliani rabbit hole, can that we talk more though? That was just a Giuliani though? joke, no rabbit hole here. 
Um, I'm not so concerned about um, the president's legal strategy. Uh, I'm not so concerned about uh, the president going before the microphones and saying what he says because we've been hearing it now since June 16th, 2015. What I am concerned about um, are the, his supporters with guns. Um, I'm concerned about those protesters that we saw trying to storm their way into uh, ballot counting places in Michigan, the protesters we've seen in Arizona. Um, we all might hear and see what the president does and understands that it's a lot of sound and fury, but there are a lot of people out there among his supporters who do take him literally and, and take him seriously and you know, wanting to take matters into their own hands. I saw someone make the comment um, flash up here that there are stores and businesses that are boarded up in, the person wrote New York and Beverly Hills is an armed camp. I'm here in Washington and places have been boarded up now for uh, at, least a, at least a week. Uh, is neither of you concerned about the president's supporters not accepting not accepting the will of the people as expressed at the ballot box and taking matters into their own in their own hands violently. Well, I mean, I don't know exactly everybody that's on the call, but to the best of my knowledge, nobody here has any expertise in that subject. And so I don't really opine on it that much because whether somebody's going to shoot something up or not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to know. And while I'm not saying uh, that there are good people on both sides, I would never say that, but there are nutty people on both sides. And no matter who won, I figured that there'd probably be some violence because there are nutty people that, uh, um, in fact, I, I, talking to somebody who was a, a administ major administrator at a major university, and they were preparing for, uh, for violence but they were playing, preparing for violence under either way, you know, with different motivations or different things that even if, um, even if Biden had, uh, if Biden had, had lost and you have a bunch of some crazies over on the far left, and then suddenly the idiots with the, with the, with the AR show up, uh, and then it, you know, off it goes. So yeah, no, I think I'm concerned, but I, you know, there's not anything, it's not my area of expertise. Talk, you know, we ought to talk to a former, you know, police chief or something. But mm -hmm. well, well I, I'm not. Go ahead, an Senator. Yeah, I was going to say. And then we'll let that, Rick jump in for a minute. I was going to say Senator. that I, I was going to say that I'm not an expert in this subject either. But it doesn't ever has never stopped me from giving my opinion. Um, and Christopher Ray is an expert on on this, and he, there is a difference between uh, the Antifa folks and the militias that he testified to Congress about. And uh, the militias are organized and the Boogaloo Boys are organized and Antifa isn't. And the greater danger, this is to the FBI director who may be fired that has said there it, it is not they're, they're not equal and we saw that in the plot to kidnap the uh the governor and we uh, of michigan and we saw 
Trump actually kind of side with the militia. And my fear during this period was seeing the Boogaloo boys uh, rioting in Antifa t-shirts. And that's what they did in my hometown, in Minneapolis. Right. They, uh, you know, they, we saw the guy who went with the umbrella breaking all those windows. He turned out to be a right-wing uh, activist, uh, agitator. And the burning of the pre third precinct, that was uh, the Boogaloo Boys. Mm -hmm. And so I worry about this a lot. You know, I just thank you so much. I just want to make sure Jonathan realizes and uh, yeah, Al and I Charlie see. know that Rick is yes, in the room. So yes, I, I was trying to call on Rick Wilson. You are here. Welcome. Great to see you. It's been a long time since I've actually seen your face other than on, on television. Um, so, Rick, just unload. Where do you think things are? Where do you think things are right now? Why do you think it's taking so long for the race to actually be declared? And do you think um, President Trump will go? <laughs> I was going to say go quietly, but go. <laughs> he will go, Jonathan, first off. And thanks again to everyone. I'm sorry I'm running a few minutes late. Uh, we are trying to land the plane here of this election and uh, making sure that that our lawyers are ready to face off against their lawyers if things go go cuckoo. But um, look, I, I think we're about to utter four words, and it's President-elect Joe Biden. And I think there's a great sense of relief building in the country um, that as difficult as this election cycle and this administration has been, as long as as difficult as this election itself has felt, I, I feel like I've aged a decade in the last four days. Um, and I survived the 2000 recount, so that should tell you something. Um, we, are, we are very soon now going to have a moment where it is inevitable and undisputable that Joe Biden will be our next president. Donald Trump, I believe, will act as Donald Trump does in every circumstance, like a child. He will, he will do dangerous and dumb things in the coming uh, hours, days, and months. Um, but, you know, at the end of this in January, Joe Biden will put his hand on that Bible in a COVID safe in, uh, inauguration ceremony and become the next president. This is over now, except for the crying on the part of the MAGA world. Now, I don't think that Trump will make this easy. He has no sensibility about protecting the, the country or our institutions or, or, the, or, or a peaceful transition of power. So I think he's going to make it difficult. He's going to complain. He's going to lie. They're very quickly trying to do what all authoritarian governments do and establish in the center of their, their narrative, the stab in the back myth. Oh, we were, we were cheated. They lied. It wasn't real. I didn't lose. I won, but. So that's going to be something I think is going to be enormously corrosive and dangerous in the coming weeks. But, you know, this is a ball game that is ending, folks. The plane is about to put its wheels on the runway, if I may mix my analogies. So that's the, the that I think is where we stand at this moment. Um, and I am, I am profoundly grateful that the, that the country has made the right decision. Hey, Rick, can I keep, uh, just stick with you for a moment? You were saying that you're trying to land the plane, and I'm, I'm hoping that the landing gear is down. But how... Uh, how concerned are you? Or actually, just give me your view on on the litigation that's out there and the lit litigation that you're anticipating, and why you have getting the lawyers ready. 
Well, we believe that they will continue to make uh, at the uh, on the low spectrum, uh, low low end of the boundary noise. At the high end of the boundary, they're going to try to get something to the Supreme Court. Um, most of the election lawyers we're talking to so far have looked at their challenges in Pennsylvania, Arizona, and elsewhere, and said they're mostly spurious. Um, but you can't let even a weird legal team led by Rudy Giuliani run rampant without having a response ready or the ability to mount a response quickly in place. Uh, you know, that's one of those things where you, unless you have multiple parties in the fight, they're, they've got a much better chance of moving things forward and, and causing more damage than they have. But we, we believe most of their, of their arguments right now, and I'm not an attorney, so I can't, you know, I can't speak from that perspective. We believe most of their arguments are, are spurious or will be dismissed quickly, but they're going to try to do it in part because it's what Trump's character is. The guy's a gambler. He's a day trader. He's always <clears throat> going to try to swing some deal or BS somebody into, into, into just rolling over. Um, but, you know, we're, we're deploying about 70 folks across the country right now um, and, and retaining people in, in, in readiness to go in to Arizona, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Georgia, and North Carolina, um, should it become necessary, and at whatever scale. We kept a legal reserve in our funding from Lincoln Project this year to fight just this battle. So we're, we're, we're anticipating there's going to be a lot of noise, but there is also a shift happening. You know, even Fox is holding off and, and not following every single rabbit that Donald Trump puts out there. Uh, I was told this afternoon that Rush Limbaugh said it's over. So I think there were, we're close to the tipping point. And now in the White House, it's the, it's the game of the worst pin the tail on the donkey ever. Who's going to go tell Trump that it's over? Yeah, Jonathan, I have a question, uh, Rick. When you say we, is this the Lincoln Project? The Lincoln, or... the Lincoln Project, right. Okay. We, we, technically, we still cannot coordinate or work with the Biden campaign as of this moment. Um, those legal strictures as a super PAC are still in place, but we've had the resources and the, and the, and the, the team, uh, in, in parked for this project for a long time for this part of the election, we anticipated no matter what happened, he would litigate, you know, even if Biden won a crushing victory, Trump will still be out there making noise legally, uh, and trying to overturn it, you know, with whatever social media, uh, and grassroots stuff you could do because obviously hey, Rick, the uh, Elias is on this and yeah, uh, Mark, yeah. The, yeah and and that team and yeah those guys know. are those guys are, yeah and, and that that's the other thing we're not the only people in this fight we're going to mount up no, of course I think with all the allied groups and the campaign mount up a very serious set of opposition to to Rudy's uh, legal clown show with Pam Bondi Yes, that's right. <laughs> hey, Rick, can I get can I get, Rick can I get some clarity from you on something? I think I know the answer to this, but clarity on something you just said that uh, right now, be be because of the the law, there is a wall between you cannot coordinate right. uh, officially with the Biden campaign. Does that wall crumble or stay if slash when Joe Biden becomes president elect? That's one of the questions I was just trying to get answered by a bunch of very smart lawyers. It's never been tested before. Mm. It's never been tested in, in, before. Um, our belief is that once the once it once the, the he's president elect is we're good to go. Um, 
Meaning you can coordinate. Right. Meaning we could say to them, you, you guys are sending lawyers here. We're sending lawyers there. But for right now, we're just trying to do it inferentially to stay over the, stay on the correct side of the line. So your lawyers can't talk to Biden's lawyers? Not yet. Okay. Not yet. Okay. Because they're being paid for by, by yeah, an independent it. expenditure super PAC. Got it. So... Yep. And I, I've managed to get this far in my career with never having an FEC complaint succeed against me. I've only had one file that was frivolous. They dismissed it. So I'm just going to try to stay out of the orange jumpsuit department uh, and <laughs> for the inauguration. And now that it, now that it's two, two o'clock and there are a lot of people who are on this call, Patricia, should I throw it to you for Q&A? Yeah, please. We've got a, a ton of questions. I just, I just have a... Um question on my own. First, for, for Rick Wilson, how does the Republican Party win back its soul? We're trying to get win back the soul of America with Joe Biden. Um, and your work has certainly been extraordinary. And uh, but how do, how do you how do you what happens now with the Republican Party? Well, you know, my friend Steve Schmidt has an analogy of a dwarf star collapsing. That star collapses, it gets hotter and hotter and crazier and crazier. Um, the question at hand is, how do you have a political party that has abandoned all of its ideological priors, has no predicate except the dear leader? How do you, how do you scale that in the future if he, when he loses? How does that work? I don't have an answer for that. And, I, and I, I've reached the point where I think the, the GOP as it is currently constituted is so hopelessly broken that it cannot be fixed. They, they, they would have to do a, a really hard reconciliation with reality and the country and the culture and, and what they've accepted for, under Trump for the last four years gleefully. And I don't know how you have a party that, you know, that used to say that it was about limited government and individual liberty and the Constitution, the rule of law, fiscal discipline, all those things. None of those things apply in the era of Trump. A lot of them never applied to begin with, which, you know, let's be honest about it. It was all, a lot of it was marketing and not, I, I like not ideology, <laughs> but a little short answer. But the, the, the reality check for a party, does this country need a center right party? I would argue that it should and does need one. Is the Republican party and has it been that party? Not for a long time. And with Trump, he just took him over a cliff. I don't think it's recoverable. I'm, I'm a registered independent now. I, I, there's no political home for a person who believes in those things uh, that, that, that the GOP once claimed to believe in. And, yeah. and there were also a lot of dead ends that the party was down way before Trump that I couldn't, you know, look, I, I came out for gay marriage in 2008 and I got reviled for it. I was told I was a rhino and a, and a liberal and all this other stuff. But the, the, the idea of a party that is based on individual liberty and freedom and, and managing the power of the state against the individual. I think there's a place for that. It's not the GOP. And I, I have no interest in trying to rebuild those people right now. That's a, is it's it a the Lincoln survival. Project Party? Is it the Independent Party? Is it something that Rick Wilson will be involved with building? You know, Patricia, that is a great question. I have focused exclusively this year on defeating Donald Trump and Trumpism. And that's going to be my mission for a while now. I, look, we're not rid of Trumpism. There are a lot of enablers out there. We've killed the big zombie, but there are a bunch of other little zombies running around out there biting people. So, you know, we're going to, the, the Lincoln Project is going to stay in a position 
as a political organization to go after, you know, the Josh Hawley's and the Marcos and the Ron Johnson's and this whole, you know, collection of people who sold out their country and their oath for Donald Trump. Um, whether the Lincoln party emerges is a huge X factor. I haven't thought about it. Um, I, you know, people have mentioned it to us and we, and brought it to us, but I, my, our response collectively, mine individually has been, let's get this thing done first with Trump. Talk, talk then in the future after that. But the Republican party has been constituted for the last decade as a broken entity. And I don't know that there's a, a foundation there suitable to be re rebuilt off of if you believe in any of the things yet that, that conservatives said they believed in. I, I'd just like to make one comment on. Yeah. Uh-oh. Uh -oh. Senator Franken, you're, you're muted. I got it. There we go. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. Um, the question was, you know, recapture the soul of the Republican Party. What soul? What soul? Uh, Stuart Stevens wrote a book. It was all a lie. And it was. And it's been a lie for a long time. Al, I'm and not I, fighting you on it, man. But I mean, I'm mad about it. You came out in 2008. Where were you in 2004 when Bush ran on that? That's what that's what Bush ran on in 2004. That's how he won the election in 2004. Fiscal discipline? My God. I mean, it and, you know, I served with these guys. There's not it's not just Cruz and Hawley and Johnson. It's oh. every one of them. Every one of them. Al, when I wrote Everything Trump Touches Dies, I had a lot of former friends and clients in the Senate and the House who said, how dare you? How dare you say that? But, you know, Stewart's book was much more pointed about about. The, the long racial history in the party. I touched on it in both of my books, but this thing is broken. It's broken and, and, the, and, and it's a hollow shell that pretends to believe in something. And as somebody who worked to elect these guys for 30 years, I've wrestled with it a lot. Stewart's wrestled with it a lot. It's a, it's a situation that, that I think is a unique moment where the irony of this whole thing is that a bunch of us who were the, were the political mechanics and the hacks and the cynics are the ones who said, wait a second, you can't stick with this guy if you believe in any of the things you say you believe in. It's like, it, the irony is it's like, it's like the hitman turned good or whatever. <laughs> I don't even know what the analogy is. I got but, it. <laughs> but I'll tell you, I sleep a lot better at night the last two years, three years than I have in my career. So I, I think we've done the right thing and I think we're going in the right direction. Okay, Ambien. <laughs> so we've Urban. got we've we've got a, I'm gonna we've got a ton of questions. We have um, the former head of the New York State Party, Republican Party. We've got Judith Miller from from Fox, Fred Hochberg, um, Robert Zimmerman, Kay Koppelvitz. Let me start and then like eight more after that. Let me start with, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that, but, and please, uh, Jonathan, if somebody has a question for Jonathan, um, ask those two, but Judith, do you want to start? Thank you, Patricia, and thanks to everybody who's still awake and alive. As somebody who had to cover the, uh, what I think Charlie called the Trump porn, and has been overdoing overnights for Fox for two nights now, and um, also wrote it a, a piece saying that the two o'clock press conference was the most outrageous and dangerous thing I had ever seen in politics. 
and that did very well at the Fox audience. I have to ask this. I mean, you're you're speaking as if it's it's understood that you know Trump is defeated. He's going to go. He got forty eight percent. He got half of this country that believes deeply in him. If you've ever been to a Trump rally, you know those people are not going to go away. No matter where he goes, Mar-a-Lago, wherever, people and a large section of the country is going to follow him. So the question I have is one, why do you think that is? What is it? it were people, the Democrats voting just against him or were they voting for a positive program? And our, what will it take for Republicans, the 48%, who voted for him to finally say, eh, maybe this wasn't such a good idea because most of them are still there jumping over the cliff with him. I wish it weren't so, but that's the way I see it. Thank you. I have strong opinions on this and I'll just try to make it short. Uh, in this country, we have two universes of information that people get. And that's the answer to your question. And part of it is Fox, by the way. I wrote a book called Lies and Lying Liars Who Tell Them a Fair and Balanced Look at the Right in 2003. And it was about Fox and also some other. And before that, I wrote Rush Limbaugh's A Big Fat Idiot and Other Observations. And that was about talk radio, of course. And since Rush and, and the advent of Fox, we now have the internet and we have social media. And the fact of the matter is, is that those people who get their information from among other places, Fox News, the Fox News Channel, also get it from Breitbart. They also get it from their Facebook feed. Facebook has algorithms that find out what you like and give you more of it and find out how to agitate you and keep you on. And as a result, we have, uh, it, this is not, the answer to this is not easy. I don't know how we deal with this, but it did, uh, it did start with, with uh, the fairness doctrine going away and Rush Limbaugh taking advantage of that. And then, uh, you know, uh, Murdoch and Roger Ailes. And then it uh, now has gotten only worse. And I wanna congratulate Fox desk we're calling Arizona prematurely. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable with ideological silos on either side and uh, uh, with people just uh, seeking to confirm their, their a trusted news source is someone who they're pretty sure they're going to agree with to begin with. And I, you know, I don't think that's good on the right. And I don't, don't think that's good on the left. And, and I do think that journalism has hurt itself that in wanting to call out uh, untruths, they've marginalized themselves so that now a large segment of the of America simply does not does not list, read, listen, watch any mainstream media whatsoever. And as a result, you can have things like uh, uh, people thinking they don't need to wear masks and they don't need to uh, social distance, things like that, because the media they're listening to isn't telling them how bad that this really is. But the thing is, uh, you know, when I was in high school, uh, took journalism, it was, you know, in a news story, you wrote who, what, when, and where, and you didn't do why, and you didn't, and you were careful around how. On editorial pages, 
be my guest, but you stuck with those four. And the thing is when a public official would lie, what you would do is go to one or more authoritative sources, point to them, cite them, and show that that public official lied, but you'd never say it's a lie. You never say it's false. You never say it's untrue because at that point you're making value judgments. And at that point you are seen as taking sides. And now too many people I see the media as taking sides. So they've just tuned them out and you know, here we are. Uh, but uh, I, 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 it, it bothers me enormously to, to see people just give up on the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, ABC, CBS, NBC. It, it, it upsets me because we need to be getting some common thread, some common news, regardless of whether you're a conservative or a liberal or a Democrat or a Republican. And um, we're, we're, we've, we've gone away from that. And uh, I don't think journalism will ever get its will ever, I don't think you put the genie back in the bottle. I, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's, uh, so anyway. I want to address what, uh, what Al said, and I think he's exactly on target, is love Roger Ailes or hate him. The guy was a genius of television. And he built a network that became the single normative force in the Republican Party above any other. Back in about 2002, we started asking a panel question in, in the survey work that we did all the time. Where do you get your news? And Fox went up and up and up and up. And at one point I stopped asking the question because Republican voters would say, my number one news source at about 70 plus percent was Fox. After that, it was Rush Limbaugh, talk radio, Glenn Beck, whomever. Everything else was cats and dogs below it. So that silo, that hermetic bubble that Fox and talk radio built for the Republican Party, on the one hand, it, it, it unified the party completely. It got them motivated and energized and all that stuff. And so when social media started to hit in the mid, in the mid teens as a central force, that normative uh, effect of Fox and talk radio on the GOP amplified itself and I, I'm always cautious about the word exponential because people use it the wrong way all the time. But it is <laughs> quite literally true in this case that Facebook exponentially amplified the messages of crazy people. And so people began to believe there was a war on Christmas. People began to believe that we were all going to practice or be forced to practice gay Sharia marriage if Obama had his third term. The crazy got bigger and bigger and bigger in part because the algorithmic nature of Facebook sells crazy. And that's why people believe Antifa is real. That's why people believe that, that the suburbs will soon be destroyed by a wave of, of, of brown people moving into your neighborhood because Donald Trump said so. And they saw it on their Facebook group of patriotic patriots for Palin. Um, and they, and they, they believe those things and being in a silo ideologically is comforting. It is, it is, it, it, it is uh, affirmative. It gives you a sense of empowerment, a sense of stability. Oh, I finally see the esoteric truth the big lib media was keeping from me. And I wrote a piece back in 2011 or 12, basically saying to Republicans, 
Stop bitching about the liberal media. Pitch better stories. Be better storytellers. Make your case better. Stop complaining. Tell the truth. Dig in. And it got this terrible blowback. And that's what that was sort of a preview of where we are now is you can't go onto a, a Trump-oriented Facebook group and make an argument and say, hey, the New York Times reported X. Because they will essentially dismiss the argument at that moment and say, well, the New York Times is owned by you-know-who. And so you can't believe them. And, and everything has an agenda. Everything's, a, you know, there's a secret agenda to everything. So you, you can't function in a society where there's a completely hermetically sealed bubble for one party that no truth can penetrate. And of course, my philosophy about Facebook is well known and simple, that it should be burned to the ground, its servers rendered into uh, material for bridges and, and, and skyscrapers, uh, every one of its coders shipped to work do farm labor, and the idea of Facebook should be banned forever, the ground should be salted where it once stood. It is the most pernicious and dangerous aspect of every single part of every single fracture and fault line in our society today. Um, and, and it is one thing that we have, we have yet to have a national way to address it. There's no regulatory structure to address it. There's no will to address it. They spend a lot of money in DC. The head of Facebook in DC uh, is a big buddy of Mitch McConnell's. So that is a problem that if we don't deal with that, this election is just a preview of the future. We have to rethink antitrust. Yeah, you do. Yeah. You absolutely do. Um, and, and you also have to rethink at some point this idea these that the, the, the tech bro libertarian side of this thing, um, that, that tools are morally agnostic because they're not at some point. Yes. You know, a, a chainsaw in, the, in my hands, I go out and cut down trees on the property. A chainsaw in the hands of, 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 of Eric Trump on a Coke bench, it's not going to be pretty. <laughs> Let me go to um, Fred Hochberg. You have a question? Okay. Um, looking to the future, uh, two part question apart. If the Senate is 50 50, uh, how does control of committees and Senate majority leader work? But more related to that, uh, in Georgia, we're going to have two runoffs. Um, Democrats, I, I understand, spent $200 million between the Kentucky race and the South Carolina race and lost both terribly. Um, the pressure to pour money and the estimates I've read today were as much as a billion dollars on these two races. Um, how do we make sense of that? Where to, how much resources to put in? I mean, when uh, John Ossoff ran for that congressional seat, I think it was 50 or $60 million or $100 million. And I'm trying to sort of make sense of this without, I don't want to walk away from it, but I also just don't want to bet the ranch. Well, first of all, on, on who controls the, the Senate, uh, the vice president breaks the tie. So if Biden's the president and it's 50-50, Kamala Harris breaks the tie and the majority leader is Chuck Schumer. That's, that's the answer to that question. Uh, the other one is harder, <laughs> and I'll, I'll give that to somebody else, I guess. But I mean, look, uh, you can't obviously, uh, Kentucky and South Carolina were really, really reaches anyway. Uh, I think that Lindsey Graham got a big boost from the Coney Barrett hearings, just being seen as the 
you know, chairing that committee and I think that, and but also South Carolina, South Carolina and Kentucky is Kentucky. Yeah. yeah. You know, to me, there are places that in the South that are changing and there are places that aren't. And just sort of, listen, let's define a Sun Belt. Um, Arizona, Colorado, Texas, uh, Georgia, North Carolina, they're all sort of following Virginia and moving away from their southernness or whatever their, you know, their, their sort of native original ideology and moving back towards the center, kind of a revert to the mean, being more like the country uh, as a whole. Because I don't think it's going to, you know, I don't think it's going to necessarily continue to go left forever. I think it's just going back towards, towards the center. But some of these states aren't. I mean, my home state, Louisiana, it's not changing. Arkansas is not changing. Mississippi's not changing. Alabama's not changing. Tennessee's not changing. And South Carolina's not changing. And the thing is that Jamie Harrison was a really good candidate. And I think he ran a really good campaign. But that had nothing to do with ideology or partisanship. It was whether people in South Carolina thought that somebody, that, that, that Lindsey Graham was untrustworthy and nothing more than a politician because they saw him go from John McCain's best friend to President Trump's best friend in a shocking amount of time for two people who are mortal enemies and uh, you know, after, after the first one passed away. Um, and they remember they remembered all the times back in 2016 when Lindsey Graham was attacking, was attacking Donald Trump and now he's his best friend. And I think they just sort of a lot of people, including some Trump people who just thought, can you trust Lindsey Graham? What's the story with him? And so that, that, that was independent of anything that was going on anywhere else. But you know, the thing is there's also, there's a law of dimension returns on campaign spending. Uh, after it, the key is, do you have enough money to do what you need to do, to do the important stuff? And then after that, you're, you're, it, it's a lot of it starts becoming uh, a waste of money, and the higher the visibility of the race, the more news free coverage there is. Um, anyway, so um, I just um, uh, and and I think that you had a lot of people sending money to um, uh, to make them feel make themselves feel better, as opposed to where there was a, a really good chance of. Uh, uh, of knocking off uh, of knocking off a, a Republican incumbent, but I agree with Al when he said, you know, at the end of the day, South Carolina is going to be South Carolina, and Kentucky is going to be Kentucky. And the question is, should you know, should a group of people who want to change control of the Senate send money into places that there's probably not a realistic, you know, it's plausible to get up within a couple points, but that last couple points, eh, you know, is that really going to work? So. Um, uh, I think uh, let's go to Robert Zimmerman. Might be a polling question or something for Al or Rick. First of all, Patricia, thank you for putting this together. It is really just a great panel. Thank you all panelists for your contributions this year, which were really significant. Uh, we're just trying to save our country. Here's my question very simply. Um, when you look at the House districts in particular, the losses we suffered in the House and even in our state legislative lo losses that we suffered, was it 
a reality that these were districts that were just basically Republican districts that we couldn't win with Trump at the top of the ticket? Or was it the fact that Democrats just got on the defensive and couldn't and got caught up being on the defensive in terms of discussing issues like uh, a phony issue like defunding the police or a phony issue around law and order or economic policy? It seems to me that uh, all too often we let the kind of lies that Trump and the Republicans are putting out there get into the mainstream. And especially for members running in conservative districts, they seem to be on the defensive and didn't explain themselves, didn't really make an aggressive response to the attacks they were facing. So I want to get your take on that. Well, I, I think that you had, uh, uh, there was good reason to believe that a lot of suburban voters, college-educated suburban voters, college-educated suburban women in particular, uh, really, really, really didn't like President Trump, really didn't like what they saw as people that were enabling uh, him. And I think they actually did come out in really big numbers. And I think the challenge for Democrats was there were some other people that also came out in big numbers that effectively offset them, which is one reason why you had as, as huge a turnout um, as we did, is that that there were lots of people with lots of different motivations, and, but all of them were motivated to vote. I mean, for some Republicans that don't, um, don't care for President Trump or his style, but as far as they were concerned, you know, they loved where the economy had been. They love their tax cuts, they love their less regulation, and they love their conservative judges and were willing to put up with, you know, a certain amount of antics uh, in order to do that. And that if he lost or if Republicans lost, that the opposite of all those things would happen, that taxes would go up, that regulations would go up and that uh, uh, we'd get liberal judges and that uh, in their minds that would screw up the economy. So, you know, I think you had different people motivated for different reasons. But to me, the troubling thing is if I, th I think the polls were right in, fine in seeing these, you know, certain suburban voters as really mad as hell, but why didn't they also pick up this additional support that was coming in uh, that, that ended up completely offsetting it. And that's where, when we, as we unpack this election, we'll be trying to figure out what happened there. But um, I mean, I will tell you, I mean, I, I think I mentioned a little while ago, I mean, you had some of the most experienced political people in the Republican party that were bracing themselves for getting, you know, getting for a hell of an ass kicking. Uh, and, and it just didn't happen. And they, they were as shocked as, as the rest of us were. You know, one thing I think is important. Yeah, go to, ahead, Rick. One thing I think is important to understand, some of the House seats that dropped off were in some more moderate districts. Um, and I will say this, we were very concerned over the summer because our research was showing us that the, 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 the Portland riots and things like that and the civil unrest um, was pushing those Republicans who were not in favor of Donald Trump, it was pushing them back toward him slowly. Every week we'd see a little bit of corrosion on that. And it started to pop up in the verbatims. We were very concerned about it during the, the course of the summer. Um, I will say this, the, <coughs> excuse me, the idea of the defund the police message, there's a reason why they seized on it in the Republican party is because it worked. And it, it may have been a lie and it was a lie, 
it may have been uh, it may have been a, 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 a you know right wing talking point from Breitbart, but it got into the bloodstream of a lot of those folks and it scared them a good bit. And so these suburban Republicans, I mean, Spanberger came right out and said it in the caucus yesterday. She's right from Virginia Seven. You know, please can we never say the word socialism again? It scares the shit out of people in a lot of places that we can't scare them. Yeah, and I, I've had this discussion with a lot of people as an old school Florida guy. No matter what you do, once you, the word socialism is in the head of a Cuban or Venezuelan Floridian voter, you're going to have to climb a high hill to get out of it. And, but, and, and it's not, I'm, not arguing about, I'm not arguing about the economics of it or anything else. It's just the core political reaction to some of these groups where if you're going to win these centrist districts, these squishy districts, you know, you need more Connor Lambs to win in those districts, not more AOCs. They all have, I'm not, I'm not it's just, a, that's just a pure political calculus question. You scale Connor Lamb, you can win a place in, you know, moderate districts. You scale AOC, not as much. And I, one, one more thing is that I agree with Rick completely, but I would also say packing the court was another thing that people- Huge issue. Care Huge issue. And, and as much as a lot of people, growing number of people are in favor of doing things to, uh, to stop climate change, the phrase Green New Deal has become really pejorative it's it, it, that it's going to that it implies and maybe it's just because of the people that that started pushing it first but i would get off of that i would get away from that language because it, you know there are people a lot of people working class people that live in the old economy and that that feel threatened by a lot of these things and and ultimately that's one of the biggest problems facing the democratic party is that you know non college whites working class blue collar whites and whites in small town rural America believe the Democratic Party abandoned them. And anything that the Democratic Party does that supports that just, just accelerates that movement away. And we have to talk about addressing climate change in a more um, nuanced way. I, 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 the vast majority of Americans know this is happening uh, but you also have to understand that there, first of all, there are jobs in addressing climate sure. and there are good blue collar jobs in addressing climate, including, I mean, if we retrofitted every, you know, building in, in America that's, uh, that needed retrofitting, that's a lot of jobs and that's a lot of manufacturing jobs. Uh, and, uh, you know, solar energy is jobs and there's no new coal jobs, but we have to also not strand people who are in those industries and we have to, which we would do if you adopt all the Green New Deal stuff. And that was a really, um, yes, a, a, a big messaging mistake, but, you know, People know, and especially younger people who are more, you know, are obviously becoming voters, know that this is an existential threat to them. So, you know, we, we should be able to win on that one. We should. <laughs> um, the American people should. Thank you so much. This has been such an incredible conversation. I wish we, I, I mean, we had um, eight more questions just uh, with hands up already. 
And um, this has been fascinating, Jonathan. I can't thank you enough for, for doing this for us. Rick, thank you for the Lincoln Project. You've really given us so much to talk about, Charlie. You know, it's it's confounding what's happening with the with the polls, um, but it sounds like um, you might have gotten the top of the ticket right. Mm -hmm. And Al, it's so great to see you. You know, we're, we're happy you. you're here. I, I hope we can have you all back at some point. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Patricia. Thanks, Patricia.